Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. At last count, there were more than 600,000 different podcasts out there to listen to. That's a lot. So each week I put on my headphones and share the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, some favourite food stories from the past few months, including a whole show devoted to finding out why McDonald's stopped serving pizza at its restaurants. Then how seeds feed us and why they're under threat. Flowering plants make up well over 90% of all the land plants we see today and the majority of our food comes either directly or indirectly from the seeds and fruits of flowering plants. Plus sharing some secrets of the American barbecue. There are no dials, no thermometers. If the fire is too hot, you spray water on it. If it's too cool, you let in more air. All of that creates a lot of smoke. And a time when celery was the vegetable to eat. 35 cents for celery, 10 cents for radishes. And I see caviar for 25 cents? Caviar for 25 cents, yes. So there was a time when celery was more expensive than caviar. And do share any good podcasts you've found recently, pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. For a while, back in the 1980s and 90s, McDonald's sold pizza at some of its restaurants. Then it stopped. These simple facts launched Brian Thompson on an investigation spanning years and 105 podcast episodes as he tries to answer the question, whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's? Now, with this kind of brief, you might expect some kind of a linear detective plot. But if you do, you'll certainly be disappointed because Brian takes this mundane-sounding question seriously, perhaps a little bit too seriously, and he also gets easily sidetracked along the way. I'll speak to Brian in just a moment, but here's a clip. He's just bought a McDonald's menu online, of course one with pizza listed on it, but it got very slightly damaged in the mail. So he phones up the postal service to find out what's happened. And when was the item received, sir? It was received, I believe, on Thursday of last week. Thursday last week, that would be the 26th. I'll take your word for it. And it was in an envelope, sir? It was. It was in a, a manila envelope. Manila envelope? The envelope was bent? Yes, it was bent. It did say on the envelope, do not bend. You say you threw away the, mail, the envelope, right, sir? Yes, once I retrieved the item from inside, the envelope transformed to me and my eyes into trash. I would definitely make a notation to be contacted regarding this matter. Okay, thank you. Okay, can I ask you one more question? The yes, item yes, I received was related to 
uh, McDonald's pizza. It was an ancient menu from a McDonald's that served pizza. Do you happen to know or remember when McDonald's served pizza? Not as far as I know, they, they never, because I'll be quite honest, I grew up in Downey, California. That's what the, one of the oldest McDonald's are. And I'll go always, always inside the museum, and I never saw anything related to pizza, sir. The museum? But they had a little, it's not, not, I'm not going to call it, that's like a shop, and they have a lot of pictures of, you know, the first, you know, McDonald's. This is the one on Firestone in the city of Downey. So you're saying there's a museum slash shop? It's, it's, Devoted yeah, to exactly. McDonald's history? Yeah, one of the oldest McDonald's that have been around. Thank you. This is very valuable information. I appreciate your candor. Oh, you're welcome, sir. You must be a McDonald's fan? I'm an investigative journalist. Oh, investigator. Have you seen the movie about the McDonald's, sir? Yes, I have. And I was surprised to see that there was no mention of McDonald's pizza in the film. I assume you're talking about the founders during Michael Keaton? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about it, my son and my husband were talking about it the other day. I had no clue about if there was a movie or not. And after I just heard the conversation, I said, really? He said, Mom, you should, you should watch that movie, you know. you know. And I go, okay. So. Did you enjoy it? I haven't watched it. I haven't sat down and enjoyed it. But I, I, I definitely welcome my husband. It's very interesting how, how the, you know how apparently somebody came up with the McDonald's and that it was taken away from him, to my understanding, right? Yes, I believe that was the plot of the film. A lot of it is very hazy to me because I spent most of my time really focusing hard on whether anyone was going to mention McDonald's pizza. But I do know that by the end of it, I thought it was certainly awards-worthy. I thought it was, frankly, snubbed at the Academies. So there was nothing mentioned in the movie in reference to McDonald's pizza? No, no, there was nothing at all. And I watched the movie seven or eight times through. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. So where, where are you getting that they actually serve pizza? Well, it's just a known fact. I've done extensive research. I may be the foremost expert in McDonald's pizza. And they wow. did serve it in the late 80s into the early 90s nationwide and also in Canada, I believe in the United Kingdom as well. Really? Well, that, that, that's actually new to me. I had never heard of that before. They mysteriously stopped serving it, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of the reason why. Really? That's interesting. So when I do hear why they stopped serving it, and your name comes up, Mr. Brian Thompson, I go, I've spoken to Mr. Thompson. I yes. Know well, you may not want to say my name in front of McDonald's executives, because I <laughs> don't believe I'm on their good side. Okay. I definitely will mention your name, I promise. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Goodbye. To be continued. Some of whatever happened to pizza at McDonald's. And I asked Brian Thompson, who makes the show, why he cares so much about McDonald's and why they made pizza or not. They are arguably the most successful restaurant chain in the entire world. And pizza is arguably the most widely loved food in the entire world. So mix pizza and McDonald's, it seems like it should be a slam dunk. And... When I looked into the reasons why they stopped serving it, none of them seemed sufficient to me to explain it. The official explanation being that it took too long to make. And uh, I don't know if you have the Little Caesars franchise in New Zealand, but here in the United States, we have this mom and pop operation called Little Caesars, and they're able to provide pizzas that are both hot and ready. That's n apostrophe ready. So you walk in, you say, I would like a pizza, please. They grab one from a heating rack behind them, and they hand it to you. And it, it 
only takes a matter of seconds. So I find it very hard to believe that McDonald's wouldn't be able to mimic this operation of this two-bit organization when they are, in fact, a three, four, or even a five-bit organization. Am I talking to an actual human being? Because your voice sort of sounds like a robot. My voice sounds like a robot? I'm a highly trained investigative journalist. Several years ago, I Googled how to be an investigative journalist, and I read some very interesting articles. And ever since then, I've had extensive on-the-job training. And they should be able to provide you with further assistance on your Okay. May I ask if you've ever taken what's called the Turing test? It sounds perhaps like a... How can I put this? A slightly mundane subject for a, a serious investigative journalist to become involved with. Is that a fair comment? Well, it could be a, a mundane topic if there were a mundane explanation for why McDonald's stopped serving pizza. But on the very first episode of my program, which I expected to also be the very last episode of my program, because I thought all I would have to do is call McDonald's and ask if they served pizza and why they stopped. And I found that when I called my local McDonald's and asked them that, the people that worked there uh, pretended or possibly were honest with me when they said they truly did not remember McDonald's ever having served pizza. And so that opened up a whole realm of questions to me. Are they telling me the truth? If they are telling me the truth, why is McDonald's hiding this information from their employees? You would think that when you become an employee of McDonald's, you should have some kind of you know, historical training. You should be well-versed in what McDonald's currently serves, what they used to serve, why they stopped serving it. And either that is not the case, or there are some forces at work keeping that information from their own employees. And actually, my current theory is that there are forces at work that are even more powerful than McDonald's that are possibly uh, keeping McDonald's from bringing pizza back. So there's something else going on here, something even more powerful than the most powerful fast food chain on earth. That's just my current theory. And did you ever actually eat the pizza at McDonald's? I did. I was able to travel to this town. It's a town called Pomeroy in the state of Ohio. A town is 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 a bit of a, a, a generous term for it. Some might call it a, a hamlet or a backwater um, burg. Shortly after I returned home after trying this pizza and reporting on it, the McDonald's Corporation forced that particular location to stop selling pizza for good. I don't know if that was because of my reporting, but again, coincidences upon coincidences. And as one of my journalistic heroes, Mr. Fox Mulder, from the show The X-Files used to say, uh, when coincidences are, are too strange to be uh, considered uh, coincidences, then uh, they are not, in fact, coincidences. I, I think I'm paraphrasing. America, Europe, Asia, Africa, even Australia, and dare I say Antarctica, would also want to munch were McDonald's pizza to return. And what do you know about your listeners? Who's listening to the show? Where do they live? Are they all over the world? They are all over the world. In fact, I receive tips from people constantly about a possible McDonald's pizza-related activities. Most recently in Germany, McDonald's introduced, I believe, a limited-time-only menu item called the Pizza Mac, which was a hamburger that featured pizza sauce and possibly pepperonis. It was basically a, a pizza version of a hamburger. 
And I was able to talk to someone who went to a McDonald's in Germany and reported back to me on that. And I hear from a lot of people in Canada because I believe McDonald's pizza lasted longer in Canada than it did in other territories. So I, I hear from people all over the world. Have you ever had any contact with McDonald's? Have they ever told you what they're thinking of your journalistic endeavors here? I've never received any official correspondence from McDonald's, save for when I call their corporate customer service line. And these days, when I have to call their corporate customer service line, and it's becoming rarer and rarer because I don't expect to receive an honest answer from anyone who's an official spokesperson, I have to do so using one of my various disguises. As an investigative journalist, I am also a master of disguise. So I have several different characters, and I can assume various accents and uh, voices to disguise myself just in case they know it's me. Uh, I believe they do employ some kind of voice recognition technology. So uh, when I call McDonald's, I have to pose as I, I, one of my disguises is a gentleman named Larry Truck, who is a, a truck driver. Larry Truck, the truck driver. That's right. L-A-R-R-I-E, Truck, T-R-U-C-K. And he's a long-haul trucker who travels across the country. Um, I, I had to call McDonald's as Larry Truck, uh, and I told them that I had driven my truck uh, through the drive through at the McDonald's in Pomeroy, Ohio, to buy pizza because I was trying to prove to my listeners that you can, in fact, drive a big rig through a drive through That was a whole other debate uh, that came up. Sometimes the show does go on some small tangents. Whatever happened to Pizza at McDonald's offers brands a valuable opportunity to connect with consumers on a personal level. And I was recently thrust into a precarious financial situation myself after an unfortunate garden slug debacle, and I could really use some sponsorship funds. Um, how do you manage to support yourself financially doing, doing this? I have several advertisers that support the program uh, every now and then, many of them on a pro bono basis. I advertise various uh, companies on the show in the hopes that one day they will send me money in exchange for those advertisements. Yeah. Every now and then I'll, I'll send them an invoice. I haven't heard back. I, I currently am pursuing a deal with a company called uh, ZipRecruiter, Right now, the show is uh, technically called Zip Recruiter Presents Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's. And I, I've yet to receive any kind of acknowledgement or payment from them yet. But I believe they are legally bound to, to give me some kind of money eventually because I do say their name. And I, uh, I have changed the title of my show to reflect their company. So I think I'm within my rights to receive some sort of compensation for that eventually. But right now, due to a series of financial setbacks, I am... Um, living in, uh, I call it a mobile home. It's uh, a Honda Civic. And actually on that note, I would also like to ask any audience members, uh, I guess just you, uh, not to follow me to my car after this taping as it is also my home and I do not have room to entertain guests. Brian Thompson, the host of Whatever Happened to Pizza and McDonald's, who, as well as being an investigative journalist, is a writer, performer, actor and comedian based in Los Angeles. And there's a list of Brian's favourite podcasts on our website right now, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Fast food fans like Brian Thompson might enjoy Business Wars from Wondery. It recreates the story of some of the big rivalries that have shaped modern consumer history. 
OK, it takes a bit of creative licence along the way to dramatise some key events, but the results certainly informative and entertaining. Past series have followed Nike versus Adidas, Xbox against PlayStation and, of course, Coke versus Pepsi. Here's one about the Battle of the Burgers, Burger King versus McDonald's, and milkshake mixer salesman Ray Kroc is poised to take over the McDonald's business. It's March 1961. In his Chicago office, Ray Kroc's about to make a critical phone call. He's decided to try and buy out the McDonald brothers. Kroc feels they're holding him back. They won't approve the changes Kroc wants to make to McDonald's and their ability to cancel the deal allowing him to sell McDonald's franchises nationally hangs over him like the sword of Damocles. Kroc picks up the phone and calls Dick McDonald. Dick, I've got a proposition for you. I want to buy you and Mac out. Buy us out, huh? How much will it cost? Name your price. Well, then, I I suppose... um, $2.7 million. Ray? Ray, you there? Stunned by the price, Crocs dropped the phone. He composes himself and picks up the handset. Uh, Dick, that's, uh, that's pretty steep. It's one million dollars for me, one million for Mac. The rest is tax. You get everything except the original San Bernardino McDonald's. We're giving that to our staff. Fine. But San Bernardino can't continue as a McDonald's. That's okay. You know we don't have the money you're asking for. Well, look, that's the price. Take it or leave it. Croc puts his finance guy, Harry Sonneborn, on the case. With help from an investor... Sonneborn persuades a dozen Wall Street money men to loan McDonald's the money it needs to buy out the brothers. Loan secured, Sonneborn heads to Las Vegas to celebrate. But no sooner has Sonneborn headed over to the craps table with the tequila sunrise than the casino's bartender approaches him. Mr. Sonneborn, I have an urgent call for you. Sonneborn takes the call. It's McDonald's treasurer, June Martino. Harry, the lenders have changed their minds. They've canceled the loan. Sonneborn downs his cocktail and calls his main investor. He finagles one last meeting with lenders to try to persuade them. It's set for 10 a.m. the next day on Wall Street. Sonneborn races to the airport and catches the red eye to New York. He knows that if this loan doesn't happen... McDonald's might never be free of the brothers. The flight lands at LaGuardia with less than an hour to spare. Sonneborn runs to the helicopter shuttle and reaches Wall Street just in time. The lenders are already waiting. He enters the meeting room and begins the presentation McDonald's future depends on. Some of episode one of Business Wars, Burger King versus McDonald's from Wandery. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. We're sharing some favourite food shows this week and the BBC's food programme turns 40 this year. With a mission to explore the world of food from culture to cooking, from politics to pleasure, each week host Sheila Dillon, producer Dan Saladino and regular contributors including the food writer Tim Hayward tuck into all sorts of stories about the foods and drinks we're consuming. 
Here's Dan Saladino and the food historian Polly Russell sharing some stories about seeds. It was the topic tackled at last year's Oxford Food Symposium by a range of speakers, including Professor Simon Hiscock from the Oxford Botanic Garden. As the great uh, tropical botanist Corner once described a seed, it's a baby plant with a food supply in a little wooden box to protect it. Around 380 million years ago, the climate of our planet changed. Earth became drier, plants had to adapt. And that is when seeds evolved. Plants had been reproducing and surviving in almost tropical rainforest conditions before, and then this gradual change to an arid environment led natural selection to produce seeds and seed plants. Which was a very, very clever move. The evolution of the seed allowed plants to be able to disperse and survive without water and create a sort of preservation box that could last for many, many years, if not centuries. And, of course, there was a time also among seed plants when flowers didn't exist. And the flowering plants, which are a very specialised form of seed plant, came much later, at the end of the Jurassic period, and diversified in the Cretaceous period from about 140 million years ago onwards which would in turn become significant for us humans. Flowering plants are also able to produce fruits which come from other parts of a flower. Most food comes directly or indirectly from flowering from plants. From flowering plants, and, and flowering plants make up well over 90% of all the land plants we see today, and the majority of our food comes either directly or indirectly from the seeds and fruits of flowering plants. So think of some of the food you'll eat today as having a 380 million year story behind it. We take for granted now all these plants and foods that are available to us, tomatoes, potatoes, brassicas, onions. And yet actually what we learn is how precarious these things are, that we might lose them. And we heard that from Eleanor Brennan, who works at the Millennium Seed Bank for the Royal Botanic Gardens. And in her talk, she came up with some scary sounding statistics about what is being lost and why that matters. So there's currently around 400,000 plants known and more are discovered every year. And that's fantastic because all life depends on plants. But one in five of those is currently threatened with extinction. It's a thousand times higher, that rate of extinction, than the rate in the fossil record. So if we look back at fossils, we can see when things went extinct in the past and you can work out the rate at which they did. And so this is now down to human activity within our environment. Huge population, human population expansion, loss of habitat. So, I mean, an immediate example is loss of forest to oil palm plantations, things like that. A large monoculture of agricultures uh, are having a huge impact. Climate change is having an impact. So out in the wild, these plants are really on the knife edge. Why does what you described matter and why might that have an impact on our relationship with food supply going into the future? At the moment, 60% of the calorific intake of the globe comes from just three species, so rice, wheat and corn. That's not a very sustainable base when there's 50,000 edible plants out there. We're so dependent on these three. 
And within each of those species, there's been a narrower and narrower selection of the seeds farmers get to plant. Take breadwheat as one example. That was one which was hit by this uh, wheat stripe rust um, back in 2010 and harvest was lost. And And so the rust was the problem, but also it's a fragile crop because I think you said 70% of the genetic diversity within that crop... has been lost through that breeding process. So as they make these varieties and then the breeds, they've been honed to specifically adapted to give us bigger seed heads and to suit the environment of those uh, monocultures. And so when they get hit by these pests and diseases, they, they go down. And so plant experts from Kew travelled to some of the most remote parts of the world in search of wild seeds that could one day provide a source of diversity we'll need for our future food supply. Some some are quite weedy, some you might actually find in a road verge, but others are going to be on the side of a, a mountain and quite inaccessible. And so we're really trying to go back out and get the diversity which has been lost from these crops as they've been bred over uh, centuries and millennia even. What I loved about Eleanor's talk was picturing these people all around the world intrepidly going and collecting in the most remote areas. Uh, these they sounded seeds, like the Indiana Joneses of the they, seed world. <laughs> they really did. Going out and doing this incredibly important work of collecting seeds which are uh, endangered that might be lost and bringing them back. Well, another thing that strikes me is that each seed does carry a story. And one that you were told comes from Mexico. Yes, I spoke to the historian David Sutton, and his talk was called Amaranth, Food of the Gods, Seed of the Devil. Great title. <laughs> and I, well, you'll find out why. I started by asking him just a very simple question. What is amaranth? A purple spinach-like or brassica-like plant that grows up to a, a height slightly less than the height of a human being. A glorious purple colour. The purple plant then sets seed and one can cook and eat the seed, one can grind the seed to bake with it, and it's actually a delightful tasting food. To this day, still mostly found in health food shops, and it's also got a very, very high nutritional value. Which made me wonder, why aren't we all eating amaranth today? What stopped this seed spreading around the world to become a popular food? I started to understand when David explained about why amaranth appealed to the ancients. There's definitely something about the plant amaranth which has an aura about it, and it's always, as far as archaeologists can tell, been involved in religious ceremonies in Mesoamerica, right back before the Aztecs and the Mayas to ancient Mexican civilizations. And so, when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in Mexico in the 16th century, they witnessed things which would have made them extremely suspicious of this seed. There are a number of uh, accounts by priests who came with the conquistadores, Uh, describing the ceremonies in some detail and the ceremonies included quite often the Aztecs would capture people alive and then sacrifice them alive and pull the heart from the body while the person was still living take the blood from the heart and mix it with amaranth and seed and then make it into into biscuits and they also sometimes made it into life-size models of people so there'd be this complete uh, effigy of a human being um, made out of amaranth seed and human blood. And that's one important reason why amaranth failed to spread around the world. 
unlike so many other Mexican foods, which have become an absolutely uh, quintessential part of our diet now. Tomatoes, avocados, papaya, peanuts, all these products which originated in Mexico and which the Spanish spread into Europe from Mexico. And the great exception is amaranth, because of amaranth's involvement in human sacrifice and cannibalistic practices. Food historian David Sutton from an episode of the food programme called Seeds, a 400 million year old food story. And here's another one all about how Instagram and social media is changing restaurant design and the food that's getting cooked for us at places like the Wild Food Cafe in London. I feel like it changed in terms of the presentation and most of our Instagram following is female and it's very much female-led the way the food looks. Um, I do think about food in terms of Instagram a lot, but I don't... I'm not the only person in charge of making the food, so whenever chefs prepare new dishes, we discuss and I'm like, okay, if if that was a bit more pink, it would just look better. So we kind of negotiate and it usually is incorporated in some way. But I feel there is a lot more personal engagement now rather than just presenting the brand. That's what we're currently working on. Something the owner of the World Food Cafe just said really struck me. It's the sense that Instagram almost became a job in its own right. She mentioned having to post sometimes daily, but certainly several times a week to maintain the same level of engagement she had in the past. That, to me at least, is quite different from defences I've heard of Instagram in the past of it being a fulfilling form of self-expression. It just feels like admin. The thing that struck me was that she often goes to talk to the chef about the images. Can things be a little pinker? That really leapt out at me. And I think it's only going to become more and more frequent as Instagram becomes more and more dominant. I think you may even see, even if they don't exist at the moment, menus designed purely with Instagram in mind. Instagram changing food. Is it Mm. changing the food landscape? There's a real clear example. I think quite a terrifying one, if we're honest. George's big thoughts, (laughs) number six. (laughs) It's an interesting question whether, first of all, Instagram has changed the way we eat, which I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, A follow-up question would be, has it changed it for the better or for the worse? In New York, for example, there was an article written recently claiming that Instagram had ruined sushi because everyone's spending whole minutes photographing their food, um, whereas high-end uh, sushi chefs would argue it really you only have about three seconds before the temperatures um, are off kilter. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got someone in San Francisco arguing that Instagram has made the dim sum of the Bay Area infinitely better because they're more playful, more creative um, and more fun. I think the other, and this is a broader issue with Instagram rather than with food Instagram specifically, there are all sorts of open questions, I think questions that haven't been answered satisfactorily about mental health, about the impact of seeing people living their, uh, in inverted commas, best life on Instagram uh, whilst you're sitting at home by yourself, the sort of habit forming dimensions of this platform I remember speaking purely personally, I, when I first started using it, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world that you'd think of photographing your food. I then moved through this sort of progression of becoming increasingly 
oblivious to other people when I was at the dinner table to the point where I'm now kind of perfectly happy taking taking photos in front of my family, which again, they would have mocked me for five years ago and now it seems second nature. Um, I think that's an odd thing to do. It is objectively speaking a really weird thing to do. So step one, find the light. Um, over to the window at the front of the house, it's natural daylight, that works best. The producer meets a man who runs workshops teaching you how to take better food Instagrams. If you are in the middle of the restaurant, uh, you can do a lot worse than ask your dining partner to hold a napkin over the top of the food. That often filters out the very worst of that orange light. You often see orange plates on your Instagram food. The man with the tips, Matt Inwood. 13.8 thousand followers. And then it's just holding down onto the screen to determine our focus, but also to determine the exposure. And we can take our photo. Matt's photo for the food programme? 276 likes. Um, down here we've got a very simple open sandwich, some leftovers from the fridge, uh, broccoli, walnut pesto, beetroot hummus, all on toasted um, bruschetta. The most important thing to me is bright colours. So the toast looks nice, the wood background looks nice, the bright greens and beetroot, you said. Beetroot hummus, yes. Pink, very, very Instagram-friendly colour, especially in the food world. Um, so pinks tend to really stand out on Instagram feeds. Some of how Instagram changed food from the food programme with food columnist George Reynolds, and that's produced by Miles Ward for BBC Radio 4. Ange emailed us at pods at rnz.co.nz with a recommendation. She's loving The Sporkful with Dan Pashman, says the show's become a recent podcast obsession and strongly recommends an episode called A Brief History of American Barbecue. Southern Barbecue was created when enslaved cooks combined African spicing traditions, European meats, and Native and African cooking methods. As slavery pushed west, regional barbecue variations were born. Tennessee, Alabama, Texas. In the 1920s, the Great Migration began. A million African Americans moved north, and new barbecue traditions began in Kansas City and St. Louis. Now, as we all know, barbecue is like America's culinary national pastime. Whole books have been written about it. Food writers crisscross the country looking for the best places. And people wait hours to eat at the most famous spots. But while most of us know about pulled pork in North Carolina, brisket in Texas, ribs in St. Louis, the Great Migration also created a barbecue tradition in Chicago that gets much less attention. This is a dish that I would say that half the city actually knows about. Uh, and I would say that's majority people who live on the south side. It's majority African-Americans uh, who grew up on this. And if you are on the north side of town, just because rib tips don't even exist on the north side of Chicago, you don't even know what it is. This is Chicago-based food writer Kevin Pang. You've heard him here on the show before, most recently in our MSG episode. Kevin runs the food website The Takeout. He wrote about Southside Chicago barbecue recently for Savour magazine. Now, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in America. Depending on which stat you use, it might be the most segregated. And in Kevin's piece, he explores not just the history of this food, but also why it doesn't get more attention. There's a lot of reasons. It's just, um, it's on the south side of Chicago. The fact that it's really been stigmatized these last few years as a place that tourists aren't really going to go. The fact that it's really hard to get to. The fact that there's no sit-down places. Most of these places are just takeout places only. 
it would be very hard to motivate someone to drive 45 minutes to a place that has a bulletproof carousel window uh, that's takeout only. That's really not a really good sell if you really want to experience outside barbecue. I think that's part of the reason why you don't see a lot of Northsiders making the trek all the way down to the south side just to try this very singular style of barbecue. There are a few things that make Chicago barbecue distinct. First, it's only on the south side of Chicago, which is the mostly black side. The pitmasters are almost all black men. Most of them moved to Chicago from the south at the tail end of the Great Migration in the 60s and 70s. And they all use a very specific cut of meat, pork rib tips. That's the knobby end of the St. Louis spare rib that's sometimes thrown away. On its own, it just looks like a very short rib. But instead of a bone in the middle, there are chewy, crunchy bits of cartilage. The most distinct part of Chicago barbecue is the pit itself. You know, in the South, the meat's usually smoked out back. But in Chicago, where real estate's expensive and winters are cold, that's not an option. So they use something called an aquarium smoker. Picture like a carnival popcorn machine, but bigger. It's got those four walls made of plexiglass you can see through, hence aquarium. That's where the meat sits. The wood goes in the metal compartment underneath, and there's a chimney on top. It's basically a box. There are no dials, no thermometers. If the fire's too hot, you spray water on it. If it's too cool, you let in more air. All of that creates a lot of smoke. As I found out when I visited Gary Kennebrew at Uncle John's Barbecue in Homewood, it's about 45 minutes south of Chicago. I could see the smoke billowing out of the chimney from a block away. When I stepped into the restaurant, Gary was tending the smoker, and there was this haze in the whole place. It kind of made it feel like I was in a dream. Like, when you go home, do you, like... Do things look really crystal clear to you? Because you're, because you don't, you're not like, I, f- I would think you must be so used to living with that right. haze. And when I get to my front door of my house, my wife makes me take my clothes off. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's going to permeate the entire house. Right, so right. So I have a basket at the front door. So when I get home, I change out of my clothes, go take a shower, and then I'm welcomed home. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Now, as I understand it, one of the, Real challenges of cooking with an aquarium smoker. I mean, there's no temperature gauge on that thing. None, none. There, like it's it's you're cooking by feel. Exactly, exactly. How do you learn something like that? Trial and error. You learn by doing. Uh, it took me uh, probably about five years before I really reached the point of consistency, if you will. Um, and there are still times where you learn new little things that make the life easier for you. Like what? What's something specific you learned recently? Um, the timeliness of spraying. Because people look at it and say, oh, they spray in the water to cool off the fire. And that's not necessarily the only reason for spraying the water. You're also releasing uh, oxygen molecules that's going to help seek tenderize the meat as well. It's creating steam underneath there, and that steam is actually being absorbed into the meat, and that's part of that uh, tenderizing process. Oh, wait, uh, Gary's spraying water. Look out. Yeah, I, I uh, divide the... The flames were getting hot there. You didn't even, you were mid-sentence. That's what, you didn't even... <laughs> You're just chatting and it's like a reflex. The yeah. flames get high and all of a sudden... It's automatic. You know, I, before I do anything else, talk to you. I got to get this meat right. <laughs> so, I, I, I respect that, Gary. Priorities, priorities. Right, right. 
The Sporkful with some of an episode called A Brief History of American Barbecue. And thanks to Anne Saney for her help bringing that to you. And thanks for the recommendation too, Anne. Please do email me at pods at rnz.co.nz when you next hear something good. And I'll be featuring lots more of your picks on future shows. Proof is a newest show that's trying to solve some great food mysteries, like should you put ketchup on burgers? And how do unusual jelly bean flavours get designed? This is from its first episode, all about celery. What's on the menu is a website that launched in 2011, and it includes about 17,000 menus from the library's collection that we've digitized and then... That's Rebecca Fetterman. She's a librarian at the New York Public Library. The menus are from all over the world, but primarily they're really... The focus is on New York City, and they range from the middle of the 19th century to the early 2000s. Okay, okay. When you have 17,000 menus and you're scraping the dish data that hasn't been scraped before, you really get a sense of themes that you might have missed. So when you look at the popularity of the dishes that appear over time, we have a button where you can click and it looks at the most interesting menu dishes and also the most popular. So obviously this is hardly a surprise. Coffee is number one. Tea is number two. And then to the surprise of many, celery is number three. Appearing on how many menus? 4,246 menus. Okay, so this is a menu from the New York Athletic Club from March 14th, 1900, Wednesday. And it starts off with different kinds of oysters. And then we have soups, and then we have relishes. So we've got celery here, white onions, radishes, and then almonds, anchovies on toast, caviar, etc. And what are those prices? 35 cents for celery, um, 10 cents for radishes. And I see caviar for 25 cents? Caviar for 25 cents, yes. So there was a time when celery was more expensive than caviar? According to this menu. Celery comes in so many different forms on these menus. I mean, they had celery-fed duckling that was advertised as the, you know, signature entree at the Ansonia in 1907. There was mashed celery, fried celery, celery tea, an appetizer called cold jellied essence of celery. I mean, they were really getting creative with celery. You might look at a few menus from 1900 and see celery and find that really interesting. But it's far more interesting when all of a sudden you realize that of the 17,000 menus, you know, 4,000 of them or more have celery on them. All of a sudden, it becomes an interesting question. Why? And what are other dishes that are so popular? And what was it like to eat out? And how was the celery served? And were there specific utensils used or that kind of thing? So wait, there were specific utensils or dishes for celery? Yeah, and more than one. I mean, the Victorians loved to have specific utensils for everything, millions of different kinds of tiny forks and spoons, but celery was a special thing. If you lived in an upper-class household on the East Coast in the last part of the 19th century, it's pretty likely that you had like some very expensive cut crystal whose only job was to show off your celery. 
Well, they're grouped by color. So at the bottom, a shelf, we have reds and oranges. And then, believe it or not, the New York Historical Society actually has some of these Victorian era celery vases in their collection. On the second to back shelf, we have a pair of celery vases. On Wait, celery vases. Celery vases. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. It's totally a thing, or it was a thing. Uh, not so much anymore. Um, we still eat celery, obviously, but what we want of celery has changed over time. That's Rebecca Klassen, assistant curator of material culture at the New York Historical Society. They're um, eight and a quarter tall and five inches wide, and they have a foot on the bottom. So um, the upper register has sort of vegetative ornamentation, um, somewhat resembling celery, uh, which is pretty cool. So I'm looking at a chart of how the Victorian table might have been set back in this time. And you can see there's a designated spot near the center of the table for these celery vases. And so what you would do with these things is you would fill them half full with water. And then you just kind of like shove some individual celery stalks in there with the beautiful green tops still on. So I imagine this looking almost like a bouquet of flowers, but between courses, guests could just kind of reach over and pluck one out and, and munch on a stick of celery. Yeah, it's sort of a literal and edible centerpiece of the Victorian table. Right. And more than that, they were an actual status symbol. Rebecca explained this. So celery was basically a luxury item or it represented status. And so having these celery vases or glasses on the table kind of helped accentuate how special celery really was. So a surprising thing about celery uh, that might factor into its special place on the table as well is that it's really associated with cold weather, um, and that's when it would be harvested. So Uh, farmers would account for a Thanksgiving market and a Christmas market. Um, So it would have been one of the few maybe bits of greenery that you would have at Thanksgiving. Maya Croth sharing her love of celery with Bridget Lancaster on Proof. And here's a clip from another episode where Sarah Joyner investigates how people design weird jelly bean flavours. Her research opens up a whole rabbit hole into the global food flavouring industry and its history from about the mid-1800s onwards. As time goes on, small flavour companies start to pop up. These are businesses that formulate, curate and sell flavour formulas to the massive burgeoning food industry. But secrecy remains crucial. It was possible for companies to have a secret molecule, like a secret ingredient, to have kind of exclusive uses of a molecule that other people were desperate to figure out. A lot has changed because of FDA regulations. Everyone's sort of operating with the same ingredients now, and the industry's really consolidated. Today, there are only about 400 professional flavorists worldwide. There are literally fewer flavorists than active professional baseball players in the MLB. I want to be a flavorist when I grow up now. No, I hope I hope that children are saying that yeah. because they're really a remarkable group of people. Their expertise is massive and mysterious. These are skilled chemists whose noses are expertly trained to identify molecular aroma compounds. 
and they make sommeliers look like amateurs. And what used to be a landscape flush with mom and pop flavor shops is now an industry dominated by less than 10 big flavor houses who control about 75% of the market. And it's a pretty big market. We're talking billions each year, not millions. These big players are contracted by all of the major food and bev companies to create flavors for almost everything we consume. Think yogurts, sports drinks, chips, frozen meals, gum, toothpaste, liquor, everything. And even so, a lot about this industry remains the same. It has maintained this sort of shroud of privacy and secrecy, even in the digital age, which feels like a holdover from their secret society days. Reporter Sarah Joyner and host Bridget Lancaster on Bean Boozled Part 2 on the show Proof from America's Test Kitchen. And thanks to producer Caitlin Kelleher for her help sharing that with you. Well, that's about it from the podcast hour from now. Just a reminder, we've been listening to Whatever Happened to Pizza McDonald's, Business Wars, The Food Programme, The Sporkful and Proof. And from me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening. I'll be back same time next week. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.